0: 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning and looking at the first nine verses. Uh, Are you familiar with the historic creeds of Christendom? Depending on what kind of church background you have, you may have repeated the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed in church. Creed is a brief statement of faith that emphasizes a few key beliefs. And often in, in a creed, the first line is critical. It sets the stage for everything that follows. So in the Apostles' Creed, the first line is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The Nicene Creed starts, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. The very old uh, Jerusalem Creed, which was part of the baptismal formula in the 4th century, middle of the 4th century, starts, I believe in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Ghost. So thinking about that got me wondering if, if an American council, I'm not talking about Christians now, but just if an American council were convened to write a creed that briefly summarized what Americans believe in the early 21st century, how would they phrase that first critical line? I think they might say something like, I believe... In myself. I dig deep. And I trust my own judgment. Contemporary culture repeats that creed over and over. Maybe as often as the church repeats the line, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And they repeat it with just as much gusto. However, you just got to believe in yourself is a creed of a culture that's atrophying, In a creed that begins with, I believe in myself, there's no room for anyone else, especially God. But while it's harmful to believe in yourself in the sense that our culture keeps saying it, that you're enough, that you're all that you need to find fulfillment, it is necessary to believe what God says about you In other words, the Christ follower not only believes in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also believes what God says about him or her. Now, that's a far cry from saying you just got to believe in yourself. It's rather to say you've got to believe what God says about you, that you are who he says you are, that you will be who he says you will be, that you can do what he calls you to do. So how about you? Do you believe what God says about you? The Corinthian Christians, like Christians in our society, found it easier to believe what culture said about them, like, you'll be happy if you're rich, you really need an advanced degree to ever become anything, and, and so on. They found it easier to believe what culture said about them than what God said about them. The culture of view... Of what a person ought to be filled their whole vision but that cultural view then now always falls short in every way you want to know who holds the grandest most magnificent view of you no it's not your mother it's your God his vision of you surpasses the wildest dreams of our culture which never manages to get much beyond appearance sex appeal and wealth But God sees much more than that. He sees you, and he sees what's glorious in you. Now, he also sees all the junk. I mean, you know what's there, and so does he. The fear, the pride, the hypocrisy, the false spirituality, everything. He sees that in us just as he saw it in the Corinthians. He knows us at our worst, which is what gives us confidence to believe what he says about our best. He knows us in the present, which gives us confidence to believe what he says about the future. And it's not just what he knows about us. It's what we know about him. You see, he doesn't hold these great plans for you and me because he knows what we can do, but because he knows what he can do. The one who made the universe out of nothing and humans out of dust has the ability to make something beautiful out of you and me. Today we're going to see this emphasis on what God says and God does and God calls and we're going to see it throughout this letter. Indeed as Paul writes in verse 9, God who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful. And as he said in another place, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. See what God says sticks. So let's read our text. I want you to listen for the emphasis on God's activity, his call, his work. Everything starts with him. So this is chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, grace, grace was the common greeting in Greek society. So you saw someone, you said, Karen. Paul says, Karis, which is he shortens it and turns it from a greeting into a blessing. Grace. And peace was the common greeting among Jewish people. Shalom. And Paul combines them here. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He'll keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who's called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. So let's start here. You need to understand this. If you are a Christian, it is because God is and has been at work in your life. The Christian life is by invitation only. Now, I think God's invitation list is very long. He'll let anybody in. But I don't want to get into a debate over God's initiative and human responsibility. They both have their place, and it's detrimental to ignore either one. In this passage, the emphasis is on God's initiative Much of the rest of the letter is going to emphasize human responsibility. But here at the start, the emphasis is right where it ought to be, on the one who started everything, God. Paul doesn't place the emphasis there so that amateur theologians can debate, but so that rescued sinners can rejoice. God did this. Paul manages to work into his introduction And by the way, almost every letter in the ancient Mediterranean world used this same introduction template. Author introduction, recipient introduction, and greeting. That's how you wrote a letter in the first century around the Mediterranean. Paul manages to work into this introduction ideas that are going to prepare his readers or his hearers, since this letter would be read to them, for the themes that he intends to hit on. And one of those things he's going to hit and hit hard is his own authority. So he begins by introducing himself as an apostle. And not just as an apostle. He's an apostle by divine calling. And not only is he an apostle by divine calling, he is an apostle by the will or the choice of God. He goes on like this in none of his other letters. But he's going to hit this point hard in this letter. What Paul wants people to know is he didn't go to a job fair and then decide, oh, I think I'd like to be an apostle. He wasn't working his way up some ecclesiastical ladder in the hopes of landing an apostolic commission. God is the one who decided that Paul would be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he called him to that task. Paul had not the least doubt that God had called him, and commissioned him as his representative. And that explains something about Paul that might otherwise be baffling. He can sometimes seem like the most humble, self-effacing guy on the planet. At other times, he seems like a stubborn, iron-willed dictator. I mean, one moment he's shaking his head and saying, I'm the chief of sinners. And the next moment, he boasts freely, those are his words, boasts freely about the authority the Lord Jesus gave me. See, Paul knew that he was Christ's representative. He was here because Christ had him here. And so he could be decisive, forceful, strong. He wouldn't back down, not an inch, not when he knew he was acting as Christ's representative. But Paul also knew that his authority rested with Jesus, not with himself. And so he could be humble, utterly self-sacrificing. He wasn't strong, you see, because he believed in himself. But because he believed in his call. Or to be more precise, he believed in the one who called him. With Paul is a man that he calls here Sosthenes, literally Sosthenes, the brother. The brother. Everybody knows Sosthenes. Sosthenes, the brother. He's probably the same Sosthenes spoken of in Acts 18 when Luke tells us about when Paul first arrived in Corinth. In Luke 18, he's a synagogue ruler. Somehow, in a dispute, this fellow Sosthenes had his fellow synagogue members turn on him and beat him up. Literally beat him up. How that guy in Acts 18 went from being a synagogue leader to being Paul's companion and his secretary is one of the mysteries of the Bible. We don't really know. But I can imagine that when Paul heard about this guy, who had been his adversary, and how he'd been hurt and shamed by his peers, that he went to see him. And and God used a really bad thing, a legal dispute. Who wants to be in one of those? Anger, violence. God used that to bring this man to faith in Jesus because God is just that good at what he does. He can't be outwitted. He can't be outdone. Let that one sink in for a moment. So that's the introduction of the author or authors, Paul and Sosthenes. Next comes the introduction of the recipients, Paul describes them as the church of God or as God's church in Corinth. That's a subtle reminder that the church in Corinth doesn't belong to the Corinthians. It belongs to God. Every time a church, and it doesn't matter if it's in Corinth or if it's in cold water, forgets that, it gets itself into trouble. Paul goes on to describe the church as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, sanctified is not a word we use all that often. It means something that's reserved for God's service. So let me give you an illustration. Let's say I buy a flat-screen TV so that I can watch football. But the Lions, they keep losing every week, and it's just killing me. And the Buckeyes get beat by the Wolverines in the the (laughs) upset of the century. And so... I decide I don't want a TV anymore. But I know that the church needs one out in the lobby. So I give it to the church. Or in reality, I give it to God to be used by the church. That means I'll no longer be using that TV for my purposes, for watching football. It's going to be used for God's purposes. In a situation like that, Paul would apply the word he uses here, sanctified, to the TV. It's been reserved for God's use. Now, we know that God wants us as individuals to be sanctified, reserved for his use. But here it's the church as a whole that's sanctified. Again, it's another reminder that church doesn't exist for itself. It doesn't exist to advance its cause. It exists for the one to whom it belongs, to God himself. Now, Paul adds another term to describe these people at Corinth. They're called to be holy. And by the way, if you were reading this in the original language, you would see this. The word holy is just in this passage is just the plural noun form of the verb that we just saw translated, sanctified. Sanctified is the verb, holy is the noun. Or it could be translated, as the older versions do, called to be saints. A saint is just someone not someone who's been canonized by the Catholic Church, it's someone who's been reserved by God his own service. In other words, the saints are us. So Paul was Christ Jesus' called apostle in verse 1. The Corinthians are Christ Jesus' called saints in verse 2. So here's the thing that Paul's trying to impress over and over again. Whether it's called as an apostle or called as a saint, the The thing here is that it's God doing the calling. And the Corinthians were on the verge of forgetting that. They were in danger of forgetting that Paul was not there on his own. He was there as Jesus' special envoy. And they were also in danger of forgetting that they were not Christians by their choice and merit, but but by God's choice and mercy. So right here at the beginning of this letter, Paul is preparing the Corinthians for what he's going to say later to them. You're not something special because of your intellect or ability, but because of God's call. Whatever place you've reached, you've reached through God's help. Alex Haley, the, the guy who authored the book Roots, used to say, anytime you see a turtle on top of a fence post, you know he had some help. You could say the same thing about a person who's doing well spiritually or a person who's exercising his or her gifts with skill. You know that person had help. I'm not sure that most of our problems right now aren't somehow rooted in our penchant for forgetting that fact. When God drops out of our field of view, all kinds of bad things happen. Paul would later tell the Roman Christians that it was because people didn't keep God in their thinking, literally, that their lives were full of so much trouble, wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. Keep God in your thinking. It sounds simple, but it's one of the best things that you can do for your spiritual health and happiness. Think about God when you're driving. You know, I I am a music lover. I have... Back in the 1970s, I had a stack of records of that big, and I just love music. I'm always listening to music. In the last 10 years, I often get in the car and turn off the music so that I can think, and particularly so that I can think about God. Think about, God, when you're driving, when you're working, when you're getting ready for dinner, when you're golfing, when you're praying, when you're waking up in the morning, when you're going to sleep at night. The difference that can make in your life is nothing short of remarkable. King David understood this. He said, I have set the Lord always before me. He's always in my field of vision. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Notice he set the Lord always before him he did it intentionally he kept god in his awareness at all times and i'm sure that took practice lots of practice and that he had a lot of failures but what a difference it made in the long run like our culture the corinthians even the christians were very individualistic that's true of us too We're raised in a culture that's extremely hyper individualistic and we don't even realize it. It's one of those cultural things that has infected our thoughts. They had all kinds of personal spirituality that left everyone else on the outside. Paul's going to address that later. But here he sets the stage in this introduction by reminding them they're not alone. It's not all about them. There are other men and women around the world whom God has called and who call on God. So he says, together with those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Jesus doesn't belong to us. He's not our personal possession. We belong to him. We're his personal possession. And so are many others around the world. When we put other Christians on the outside, we're going to find to our dismay that God goes out and joins them. Now, with the greeting in verse 3, the introduction proper comes to a close. What follows in verses 4 through 9 is what was known in the study of rhetoric as the exordium. In the exordium, an orator would praise his hearers. He would try to open them up, really he try to butter them up, and make them feel that he was on their side. The goal of the exordium was to gain a hearing. Paul uses that same technique, but with a difference. If you read it closely, he doesn't praise the Corinthians for their abilities and gifts, like most orators would. He praises God for giving the Corinthians their gifts and abilities. He's constantly pointing the Corinthians back to God. He wants them to be grateful. He doesn't want them to be conceited. He tells them, I'm always thanking God over the grace given you in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to list three areas in which God's grace is evident in their lives. The first of the first two are in verse 5. The last in verse 7. Their speaking, that's evidence of God's grace. See, remember how they loved oratory and rhetoric? Their knowledge, they were smart, they were educated and they knew it, and their spiritual gifts. What's remarkable about the three things for which Paul gives thanks to God, as that they were the things that were causing all the trouble in the church. Their fascination with rhetorical skills had led them to value style over content, eloquence over truth. They loved a speaker who could make them laugh or make them cry or make them swell with pride. They fancied themselves judges of good rhetoric, and some of them were even disparaging Paul's oratory style. Yeah, speaking master nothing. And yet Paul gives thanks to God for their interest and ability in rhetoric, in word, is how the Greek puts it. And because they already felt like they'd arrived in terms of education and comprehension, they really weren't listening to what their teachers had to tell them. They were proud of what they knew, and frankly, they were looking down on people who didn't know as much. And yet, Paul thanks God for enriching their lives with knowledge. And because they fancied themselves to be spiritually advanced and richly gifted, they were anxious to put their abilities on display. To put it bluntly, in Corinth, they had a problem with showing off. Their meetings had become a stage for certain people to flaunt their superiority. Paul's going to bring that up later, especially in chapters 12 through 14. But here he thanks God for richly gifting these Corinthians. How do you feel when someone's showing off? How do you respond when someone's trying to look smarter than you? Or deal with that person who seems to know everything? Do you thank God that he gave them that knowledge? Do you recognize and praise the giver? Or do you belittle the gift? I know my default position is to belittle the gift, but that's not what Paul does. The things for which Paul thanks God were the things that were causing him grief, but here's the thing about Paul. He was no, under no illusion about us. He knew the people of Christ have all kinds of problems. He knew that Christians struggle with things like pride and envy and lust. He understood that God's chosen material from which to form saints is sinners. And he knew that's a messy process. This didn't take him by surprise. He was genuinely grateful for what God was doing there. See, he understood that the problems that the Corinthians were experiencing didn't come from any of their God-given gifts, but from their attitude about their gifts. Their gifts weren't the problem. They were. As the great New Testament scholar J.B. Lightfoot put it, St. Paul here gives thanks for their use, the use of these gifts. He afterwards condemns their abuse. But here he gives thanks for them. He was genuinely grateful that God was working in these people's lives, even though he disagreed almost totally with what they were doing. That is such a mark of humility. It's pride, I think more than anything else, that robs us of the gladness that is our birthright by second birth and that God intends for us now I'll mention one other thing before i bring this to a close the corinthians they really were a problem for paul and the problem was getting worse if Many of you, I know, are reading 1 Corinthians this week in preparation for this study. If you go on and read 2 Corinthians, you're going to see that things got worse later. The problem was getting worse. The Corinthians were proud. They were prejudiced. They acted arrogantly. They were fighting with one another. They were selfish. They were sexually immoral. They were theologically confused. And all the time, they thought of themselves as spiritually superior. Pride, prejudice, conflict, selfishness, sexual immorality, theological error. You might be thinking, that sounds just like those blank, in which blank is the denomination of your choice. Sounds just like those people. You absolutely know those people are wrong. They're so wrong. They're dead wrong. But here's the thing. Even though Paul absolutely knew these Corinthians were wrong, he never treated them as if they weren't Christians. He thought of them as brothers and sisters. Even though he disagreed with them, he never questioned that God had accepted them through Jesus Christ. He even expressed confidence that they would be, this is verse 8, strong to the end so that they would be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know why Paul could do that? He could do that because his confidence wasn't in the Corinthians character or their morality or their theology. His confidence was in their God and his God. When we cross people who claim faith in Jesus off our list, because their beliefs are wrong, and we know they're wrong, or their attitude stinks, or their morality is questionable, guess what? We're not acting like the Apostle Paul. And you know what? Too many of us keep our pencil sharpened just in case we get the chance to cross somebody off our list. That was not the heart of the great Apostle, nor is it the heart of his master, and it oughtn't to be our heart either. All right, so let's apply to our lives today what we see in the introduction to this ancient letter, and we really can do that in an authentic way. Paul could handle this difficult situation. He could accept these difficult people. He could sincerely thank God in the midst of hardship because he had learned to keep God in his vision. He, like David, had set the Lord always before him. He knew it was God who called him to this work and these people to his son. It was God who gifted them. It was God who would make them stand firm. Listen to this quote from Dallas Willard. The fundamental secret of caring for our souls is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to God. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habit of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. So here's the application. Do what Paul did. Do what David did. Do what Willard did. Set the Lord always before you. Now here's some ways you can do that. First of all, decide to do it. I mean, everybody skips this step, and it's the most important one. Decide to do it. Intend to do it. One of the biggest failures in our spiritual lives is that we mistake desire for intention, We congratulate ourselves on the desire and we never get to the intention. We desire to be the kind of person who lives in the presence of God, but we never actually decide to be that person. So decide, I'm going to be that person. Intend to bring God before your mind and you can do that by talking to him, praising him, thinking about what he's like, asking him for things, talking to other people about him and so on. Intend to bring God before your mind at least once every waking hour. You can do that. Get a friend to ask you how you're doing with it. Say to them, hey, this is what I'm doing. I need some help. Or maybe the two of you can do it together. And you can, and talk to each other about how you're doing. Start your day out by bringing God before your mind. Before your feet hit the floor. As soon as you're awake, speak to God. Offer your day and your service to him. It might help to have a prayer or a few scripture passages in mind to recite. Do the same thing right before you go to sleep. You'll be helped in this immensely by memorizing some of the great passages of scripture. Try memorizing Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is just 115 words in the New International Version. You can memorize that. You say, I have a terrible memory. The former pastor at this church, Pete Woods, was struck by lightning, basically lost his memory. He was able to remember thousands of poems, and it built his memory. I knew a man in, in the place where I pastored before I came here who at 70 years old had never memorized Scripture. He'd had a stroke, and he said, you know what? I'm going to try to come back, and what I'm going to do is start memorizing Scripture. He memorized huge passages of Scripture You can do it. Don't make excuses. Memorize Psalm 15. Memorize the Lord's Prayer. That's about half as long as Psalm 23. I said Psalm 15. That's not what I meant. Psalm 23. But memorize Psalm 15, too. It's a good one. (laughs) Another thing you can do is to talk to people about God and about what you're learning about him. Now, there's all kinds of ways to do that. You can post something on Facebook. You can text someone. Start an email correspondence for this purpose with a willing friend. Once a day. Hey, here's what I learned today about God. And contact each other about it. Research shows that one of the most effective things you can do in your spiritual growth is talk to other people about what God's teaching you. Paul had to emphasize again and again God's role in the Corinthians' life because they weren't emphasizing it. Don't let us make that same mistake. And then let me give you one last thing. I started off by saying, if you're a Christian, it's because God has been working in your life. Here's the converse. Even if you're not a Christian, God has still been working in your life. You can't get rid of him. Sorry. He may even be calling you to join his people. He's always calling someone. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's you. For heaven's sake, take the call and say yes. All right, let's pray. God our Father, when we find ourselves making our plans. Calculating things out without you being part of it? Would you bring us to a stop? Lord, would you fill our vision? Would you help us by your grace to set you always before us? I pray you'll put this on our hearts and give us help from friends and our church family this week. In Jesus' name, amen.